Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right, so today we're going to study Genesis chapter 15, 16, and 17. And I realize that that may seem like a lot, but that's kind of what we do around here. We read a lot of the Bible because we really love it. We're not fans of just reading one verse or so. We want to go through the Word of God and we want to see what it means in context. And we want to understand how chapters build upon each other and how that impacts our life. And so today we're going to read 15, 16, and 17. But last week we read 13 through 14. And Lyle walked us through this concept of trusting the Lord with our time and our talent and our resources. It was a powerful message. I went back and listened to it. And it, was, um, it was probably one of the best messages he's preached. It was a very, very powerful message. So I want to build on those concepts of Abram coming off of this relationship that he had with Lot of arguing and fighting uh, with these different kings and having this uh, opportunity to take the wealth from the king of Sodom. And we're going to pick that up in chapter 15. So if you, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go to Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through, uh, we'll stop at 6 and talk a little bit. So we'll read a little bit and talk a little bit. Uh, we're going to put the scripture up on screen if you didn't bring your Bibles. So you can follow along with us. So Genesis 15, verse one, it says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. This is what the Lord said. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Now, Eliezer, you'll find him later on. He's kind of like a servant in the house of Abram. He's the guy who's responsible for going and finding a wife for Abram's not yet born son. He's the one who sees Rebekah at the well. We'll find out more about him later, but he's one of the main guys in Abram's family, and Abram's assuming that he's going to be the heir. And Abram said, this is verse three, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. This is what God's telling Abram. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven. And number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. All right, pause there. At the end of Genesis chapter 14, where Lai was speaking last week, the king of Sodom, after this big war, came to Abram and offered him a bunch of earthly wealth, uh, money, treasures. And Abram decided that he didn't want those treasures. And he told the king of Sodom, no. And we're told the writer of Genesis, that the reason why Abram said no to those treasures was because Abram didn't want to walk around with the king of Sodom thinking that he was responsible for making Abraham rich. Abram didn't want to be in debt to the king of Sodom. He didn't want the world thinking that the reason why he was successful was because he took the gifts from the world. 
So essentially what Abram was saying in telling the king of Sodom no was, I don't want the world's wealth because this is one of the subtle ways that I'm going to leave Ur. Ur was the original town where Abram and his father lived and God called him out of. And if you remember from two weeks ago, one of the things that God told Abram was, I want you to come out of this world. I want you to come out of this culture. I want you to come out of this way of thinking. I want you to come out of this family. I want you to leave everything behind and I want you to trust me. Trust me for everything. Trust me for your directions. Trust me for for your timing on how this is gonna happen. And I want you to trust me on the provisions. Wealth, how you're going to be able to finance your family. I want you to trust me. And so Abraham, when he gets this opportunity to accept some treasures from the world, he tells the world no. And the reason why is because that's one of the ways he's exercising his faith of saying, I'm leaving this kind of stuff behind. Now in Genesis 15, we see that God comes to Abram after Abram has said no to the world's wealth. And God comes into Abram and says, I'm going to give you comfort. I'm going to comfort you by giving you something better than the wealth you said no to. I'm going to give you a promise. And what God promised Abram was a son. Now the reason why the promise of a son is greater than a promise or uh, taking the wealth of the world is because in God's economy, people are always greater than wealth. Always. People are always greater than economy, than business. People are always the number one priority and the most valued thing in God's kingdom. And so what God is saying is that when you say no to the stuff of this world, that only has value in the eyes of this world, I'm gonna bless you with the thing that is most treasured in my world, which is people. I'm gonna give you a son. That's, that's, that's exciting news. And that's exciting news for the church too, because that's what God is offering when you become a believer. Yes, your sins are washed away. Yes, you are forgiven. Yes, you get eternal life, but you also inherit a new family. You get people. And the greatest of those people that you get is Jesus. See, when you come to Jesus, the greatest thing that you get is Jesus. You get him. He's the greatest treasure of the universe, and you get him. And that's what God's trying to tell Abram. Your value system is starting to shift and I'm excited about it because you're not wanting the things that you used to want anymore. And so I'm gonna reward you on on that heart change that I did by giving you something that I value and that is a son. And Abram believed God's promise and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now for us, one of the important takeaways just from the first six verses is that in the same way that Abram valued the promises of God over the offers of the world, we should see the promises of God as more valuable than the offers of the world. That's how we should be living. Unfortunately, it's not how we live. And the, and, and the, the reason why I know that is because many people don't read this. The only time you hear this is when I teach you this. 
You don't read this on your own, and therefore you don't know the promises of God, and because you don't know the promises of God, you don't treasure the promises of God, and your value system is out of whack. So when the world comes and says, hey, look at this pretty shiny thing that's so valuable, you say, yeah, that seems valuable. I would love to have that. Okay, and the world says, but it's going to cost you your allegiance to the king. Well, I could probably have that and some of this, right? I don't have to give all this up. I can have some of this and a little bit of this, but that's not the offer from the Word of God. The Word of God is is forsake all for the one thing that is worth everything. That's the offer. And so when we read the Word of God, we see this contrast that God promises these things and we see the world offers these things. The worldly offers that we constantly get have strings attached and they're constantly based on our performance. You get this if you are this. If you can rise to this, you can have this. They're tied together to our performance. They're attached to these strings. And then this is the world that we live in. And then we, we start doing the hard work of going through the word of God and finding the promises in God's word. And we see that every single thing that he promises is not attached to some string. It's attached to his word. So if he says it, it's true and it's guaranteed and it's going to happen regardless of you. It's not based on your performance. It's based off of his love. So, so the things that the world offers, you have to earn, but the things that God offers, you inherit because he loves you. That's the beauty of God's word. It's based on grace. It comes from a loving father, not a world that wants to buy you or own you. So just briefly, let me give you some examples of promises from the word of God. Matthew 6, 3 through 4 says, Jesus tells us that we are promised a reward if we give unto God's kingdom of our time, talent, and resources in a way that's not publicizing it. So if you take the posture as a a follower of Christ that says, I'm going to give to the kingdom of God. God has my time, my talents, my resources, and I'm not going to spend all my time letting everybody know what I've done. God says that you're going to reap a reward. That's a promise. Here's another one. John 8, 31 through 32. God promises freedom if you abide in Jesus. Now what does abide mean? Abide just means just resting. So if I do something, then I'll be free. Nope. The only thing you have to do is just abide. I don't understand that. I know, but do you want to? Because I've been walking this thing for over 20 years, and I don't know that I completely understand it. I think I've seen it from a couple angles. I think I kind of understand what abide means, but I don't get it yet. But I want to. And the more that I want to, the more that I learn about it, and the more that I realize that I'm free without having to work for it. Here's another one, Matthew 7, 7. Jesus promises that he will answer your prayers. The promises from the word of God are what we put our hope in, not the offers of this world. Because the promises are guaranteed and they come from a loving place, not a place that that has strings attached and that is based off of our performance. So the offer is 
Put your hope in the promises and not in the offers of this world. But the requirement is you've got to know the promises. You want to rest in the promises? You've got to know the promises. So you have to start reading the word. You follow? Cool. Let's pick it up in verse 7. So he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these things and he cut them in half and laid each half over against the other but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcass, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back in here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does that mean? It means that God is giving grace to these nations, giving them time to repent. But he knows in his great wisdom they won't. And because they won't, he will use them as instruments of the freedom and the deliverance that Israel will be a part of. And Israel will be the sword of God to deliver the judgment on these people. But it can't happen yet because it hasn't been come to fruition yet. Verse 17, when the sun had gone down, this is, this is big. The sun came, went down, and it was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between these sacrifices that had been cut and laid on the ground. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, And then he names the rest of these nations and the entirety of where the land was going to be. I want to pause right there. What is happening is God is cutting a covenant with Abraham. Now, the interesting thing about this is when someone would cut a covenant, both parties would be involved to participate in the covenant. But in this situation, when God cuts the covenant with Abram, Abram essentially falls asleep and God does all the work. That's an important thing to see. That this covenant is based off of God, what God can do, God's promises, God's going to see it through, and Abram's going to sleep through it. That's good news for most of us who sleep through most of our day, spiritually speaking. God is still at work. God is still being faithful. Even though that you are drowsy when it comes to awareness of what he's doing. So this idea of cutting a covenant, he begins with reminding what he has already done. I brought you out 
of Ur. And then he tells Abram to make a sacrifice. And the sacrifice is three animals, a heifer, a goat, and a ram. And he was to cut them in half. So imagine the goat, you're gonna cut the goat straight down the middle from top to bottom. So there's two legs on either side and it's gonna be split in half. And you're going to lay them one half of the goat on this side and one half of the goat on this side. And their hooves are gonna touch. There's gonna be a little bit of room here in the middle, but they're going to be laid side by side like this. And then you're gonna do the same thing with the heifer and the same thing with the ram, but we're not gonna cut the bird. You got two of those. I want you to lay one on one side and one on the other. The significance of these animals is that these were the animals that the Levites would be instructed a couple hundred years later to sacrifice unto God. These were the animals that were part of the regular sacrifices. These were the clean animals that were considered ones that could be sacrificed unto the Lord. And this is the first time we're seeing Abram participate in this. So what he would do is he'd lay these animals half on this side, half on the other, to be a path in the middle. And the purpose was for the, per- the two people cutting the covenant, there'd be blood all over in the middle. The two people cutting the covenant is they would walk the path of the covenant. They would walk through the dead animals on the pile of blood. And the symbolism for this moment would be what we are doing in cutting this covenant is that we are passing through, we're, we're, we're walking this road, we're making this covenant, we're going from here to here, and what we're doing is we're passing through these animals, and it's a symbolic representation that in the way that they are cut, they can never be put back together again. So when I finally walk from here to here with you, this person I'm cutting the covenant with, we have symbolically demonstrated to the entire world and everyone watching that what we are doing now means we can never go back to the way it was. You can't put these animals back to the way they were. They can never rise up and start walking again. We have walked a path through something that can never be changed. And this covenant that we just cut by cutting these animals in half means that we can never go back to the way it was. Everything we do from this point forward has has no impact on what has come before. We are now making a new covenant and things can't go back the way they were. This is what God was communicating and asking Abram to do this. It symbolized a walk of death where things can't go back to the old way. So God walked through this sacrifice, and did you see what he walked through as? He walked through as a smoking pot and a flaming torch. These two symbols should be very important to us because what, what were the two things when the children of Israel were freed from Egypt and wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? What were they led by? A pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. God is telling Abram what's going to happen to his descendants, and he's giving him a representation of how he's going to demonstrate himself, God, how God's going to demonstrate to his people, I'm going to be there with them, and I'm going to lead them this way, in a pillar of smoke and a pillar of fire. But you need to know, Abram, that while we're cutting this covenant, And I'm promising all these things. In order to inherit it, your descendants are going to have to suffer. And that's really, really important. Basically, Abraham's descendants would inherit this promise, all this land, by going through suffering. Now, the relationship between suffering and inheritance. Suffering and inheritance started with Israel, but it did not end with Israel. Okay, follow me here. 
is this is not a popular message. The connection between suffering and inheriting what God wants started with the people of Israel, but it didn't end with them. Galatians 3.29 tells us, Paul says, if we belong to Christ, then we are part of Abraham's seed. Meaning, if you are a Christian, because of Jesus, you are now tied into a promise that is thousands and thousands and thousands of years old. In fact, it's this promise. You are part of the fulfillment. When God says, Abraham, look up and look up in the sky. See how many stars are up there? That's how many descendants you have. If you're in this place and you call yourself a follower of Christ, you're one of those stars in the sky that God is showing Abraham. You're one of the descendants because we're parts through Christ as seeds of Abraham. And just like the seeds of Abraham directly connecting to Israel had to suffer to inherit the kingdom of God, as Christians, we also inherit the kingdom of God through suffering. I don't want to lose you. Follow me here. Acts 14, 22. Through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anybody wants to come after me, they have to deny themselves. They have to take up their cross. That cross symbolizes suffering. And you've got to follow me. Now, what I'm not saying is that you have to suffer to get saved. Getting saved is putting your faith in the promises of God and God counting that belief as righteousness. You are saved. But the moment that you trust in Christ until the day that you are put in the grave, you are promised great trials and suffering. And if you think that the reason why you came to Christ was so that you can avoid all of that, Somebody preached you a false gospel. Somebody lied to you. Coming to Christ does not mean that all of your bills are paid and all of your problems are solved and there's no struggle. Coming to Christ means all of your struggle has purpose now. Before it was just pain for pain's sake. Before it was just struggle with no meaning. But now your pain and your struggles and your suffering, it has purpose because what God is doing in it is shaping you and molding you and changing you and getting the gross out and filling you with him. The suffering that we go through in life prepares us for the ultimate inheritance of resurrection. That's the big payoff. The fact that the one thing that all the world fears the most, death, is something that Christ defeated. And it's something that we no longer have to fear. Because all we have to do is just wait a little while and then we'll come back from the dead like Christ did. So why suffering? Because suffering puts you through this process of transformation and it allows you to get to a place where you're putting your flesh to death 
And death is the ultimate goal because you can't resurrect something that's still alive. If the whole point of Christ's life was to die so he could be raised again, to ransom the world unto himself. And Paul tells us, that's what we're looking for. That's our blessed hope, the day where our king returns and resurrects us from the dead. If resurrection is the big payoff for eternity, then in order to get there, in order to inherit that, you're going to live a life of being uncomfortable, suffering, of trials. Now, this is a sliding scale. There are some believers in this world who live in parts of the world who experience far more suffering than you do. But just because we live here in America, in the land of the free and the home of the brave, does not mean you are free from suffering. Suffering is God's way of growing your faith and preparing you for the inheritance of what's to come. Let's go to verse, uh, Genesis chapter 16. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of his wife. So, Abram just slaughtered animals and watched God walk through a bloody mess in order to communicate the promises that were coming. And he goes home and he tells his wife, guess what, sweetie? Guess what God just told me? And she says, well, it ain't happening with this body. So how about you take my servant and have a child with her, and we'll call that the promised kid. And Abram says, okay. Sounds logical to me. Now, what is going on? Abram believed. We're told in Hebrews that Abram believed. It's not that he didn't believe God. He believed. His problem was that he was impatient. He believed, but he didn't want to wait for the promise. And so what happened was he was presented with a plan that seemed similar to God's plan, and he went for it. Opportunity and convenience is always more appealing than patience and obedience. Opportunity and convenience will always tempt you into not waiting and obeying. And that's what happened to Abram, and that's what happens to most of us. For those of us who, we we know God's promises, we know what he tells us, we know what we're supposed to do, we know how we're supposed to walk. Why don't we do it? It's because we're impatient and we don't like suffering. We know deep in here, that the path he wants us to walk is not going to be comfortable and it's going to require things of us that we don't want to give. And so what God says is, trust me. But what's, gonna, what's around that corner? What? 
I might get scared. People might see me as vulnerable. I might not have enough. God says, I'm not going to tell you what's around the corner. I just want you to trust me. Okay, all right, around the corner. How about this corner? Can I take this corner and that counts? No, that doesn't count. Why doesn't this corner count? Because around that corner is going to be things that you don't like and require things of you that you don't like. And also, I don't like and I want removed from you. And so if you take this shortcut, you'll convince yourself you did what I said, but it's not actually obedience, and I won't get out of you what I want out of you. And so you can take that corner, because I love you, I'm not gonna give up on you, but that corner is just gonna lead you right back around here, and you're gonna have to make this decision again. And that's one of the reasons why many of you at 35, 40, 50, you feel like you're still going around the same mountain and you can't figure out why. It's because you're trying to do things your way. And he gave you the first opportunity to surrender your selfishness back when you were 20, but you wouldn't let him. You said, no, I like me. I like things this way. So God said, all right, I love you. And then at 30, let's go around it. I don't want to. And then at 45, pretty soon you're like, man, I don't feel like I'm getting anywhere in life. That's why. Because you're refusing to surrender and follow him. You're doing your own thing and calling it his thing, but it's not his thing. It's your thing. And today is the day to stop doing that to turn your back on what you want and follow what he wants. And I'm telling you, it's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to require things of you. And on the other side of it, you're not even going to look like yourself anymore. But that's good news because in not looking like yourself, you're going to look more like him. So Abram ignored. He took shortcuts. It kept him from growing. He got Hagar pregnant. And immediately Hagar, when she got pregnant, she started lording it over Sarah. Hey, look who's got the baby bump. Look what, Sarah, look what your husband did. Look at this. And Sarah went, she's furious. She really let Hagar have it. And Hagar took it personal. And Hagar fled out into the wilderness. Let's pick it up in verse seven. So Hagar runs away from Sarai. She's fleeing in the wilderness. This pregnant woman out in the wilderness. Verse seven, the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring of the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I want to say Cotton Eye Joe so bad, sorry. (laughs) Just like you. I'm just like you. She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. And the angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son and you shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And he shall be a wild donkey of a man. What a promise, huh? Your son is going to be a wild donkey of a man. Thanks, Lord. His hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all of his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. Oh, so it's not just an angel. It's the Lord. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. For she said, truly, here I have seen him 
who looks after me. And therefore, the well was called Ber Lahai Roai. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar fled to a well, and the angel of the Lord visited her. Now, who's the angel of the Lord? Now, the word angel, we picture like eh, wings and flying around. The word angel in the Bible means messenger, messenger of God. So who is the angel of the Lord? It's Jesus. Jesus. Jesus has always existed. John tells us that at the foundations of the world, Jesus has always existed. He's always been there. He wasn't created the moment he was conceived in Mary's womb. He's always existed. He was in a different form before he took on human form to be murdered by his own creation and ransom the world unto salvation. But before his mother named him Jesus, he existed as a part of the Godhead and he was considered the angel of the Lord. And he actually appears a lot in the Old Testament. So Jesus is at a well with a woman who's dealing with the stigma of sexual issues. You feel like you've read this before? You have. It's John 4, the woman at the well. Jesus has got a thing for hanging out at wells and talking to women who are struggling with sexual issues. Why is that important? Because you'd think that the king of the universe has got a thing for hanging out in churches with religious folk, but he doesn't. He likes hanging out in the wilderness with people who are at the end of their rope, at their wit's end, and have no other options in life. That's where Jesus likes hanging out. He likes hanging out with broken people, not people who think that they are fine. Jesus He likes hanging out with people in the wilderness who are struggling with things. And if you today feel like you are struggling with something and you are desperate for something that the world can't offer, this is the best news I can give you. Christ, the living water, is closer to you than you can possibly imagine. And if you feel like God is far away, I'm telling you, he's not. Now let's go to 16, uh, 15. Uh, I read that, let's go to, yeah, 1615. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar born Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar born Ishmael to Abram. Holy smokes. Dad was 86 when Ishmael was born. Now go to 17. And Abram was 99 years old when the Lord appeared to Abram again and asked to him, I am God Almighty, or said to him, I'm God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into the nations and kings shall come before you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and you there throughout the generations an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of sojournings and the land of Canaan an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Now, for 13 years, 
God didn't speak to Abraham after his mistake. He was 86 when Ishmael was born, and he was 99 when the Lord came and spoke to him again. 13 years of silence after a mistake. We, we look at guys like Abraham and Noah and Moses, and we see these big moments, but we're, we're really quick to forget the moments in between the big moments of faith. And this is important. Because Noah lived for 600 years before the flood. Moses was 80 years old before the burning bush. There was a 13-year quiet period for Abraham after he disobeyed the Lord. What does this teach us? It teaches us that we see the big moments in life, these big moments of faith, as the things we need to strive for, the things we want most, these huge moments where our faith is called into question and we can stand up and do these big things for God. We think the big moments are the game changer, but in reality, the big moments are not the game changer. The game changer are the things you do before the big moments. And so as people of God, we're convinced if I could just get to church and have an experience, things would be okay. I got bad news for you. If you're living like that, that nothing's ever gonna change. Sunday morning is not an experience. Sunday morning is an overflow of everything that's been happening all week long. It's not your moment to shine or for things to change. Now, God does change things in moments like this. But the reason why we gather is not to come to God like some kind of cosmic drug dealer who's going to give us another fix to get through another seven days. The reason why we come is because he's a good God who's been doing things all seven day, all, for, for the past seven days, and we want to sing and shout about it and learn more so our eyes can be open to see him doing more things for the next seven days. And then we come back together and we shout about it again, and we lift up his name, and then pretty soon we're all shouting so loud the, the world is like, what are they shouting about? Let me tell you. That's evangelism. So we, see, we, we, we think these big moments are the things that we strive for, but in reality, your normal, everyday, mundane life is what shapes these big moments. God changes Abraham's name, and as he finishes chapter 17, I'm not going to read 9 through 27, I'll paraphrase it for you. Uh, what God does after he establishes the covenant, so 13 years has passed, he's come in and he says, okay, Abraham, I, back in chapter 15, I did what I was gonna do, I made the promise. And now it's time for you to understand your responsibility. There's some things that I want you to do to walk in obedience. And so the first thing I want you to do is I want you to change your name. Your wife, Sarai, and you, Abram, I want you to change your name. From now on, your name is Abraham and your, name is, or your wife's name is Sarah. Now why did God do that? Because as you look through the Hebrew Bible, the word that we use for God is Yahweh. And the first three letters, Yahweh, Y-A-H, the A-H is what God asked Abraham and Sarah to add to their names. God was saying, moving forward as a response to this covenant, I want your very name to reflect my ownership of you. That you don't belong to this world, you belong to me. And everyone will know it because my name is in your name. But then he said, Ishmael is not going to be your heir. Sarah is going to give birth to a child named Isaac. And when that child is born, 
I want you to enact a, prox, a, a, a covenant. Don't wait until he's born, but um, when he's born, he's going to be participating in this process um, that I want you and all of the male people in your household to participate in. And that covenant is called circumcision. And this is not something that you typically think about talking about on a Sunday morning. But for the Hebrew people, this was a fundamental cornerstone of who they were and a reflection of the belief that they had. And we're told in the New Testament that this covenant actually had bigger impacts and symbolism than just what it was in the Old Testament. The mark of circumcision was an outward sign that declared an inner faith and devotion. It was, a de- it was a declaration of allegiance to God's ways and an identity in his family. And it was symbolic of God's people cutting away the flesh, the worldliness, the selfishness that was so prominent in the culture around them. It was a way to say, I belong to God and everything about me reflects that. My physical body, my name, it all reflects the fact that God is calling me to come out of this world and this culture, to cut that nonsense out and away and live completely new unto him. It meant I am in this world, but not of this world. Now, as all Old Testament symbolisms uh, point to Christ, this one points to a greater revelation, and we're told by Paul in Romans 2, 25 through 29, that while circumcision was an outward symbol in here in the Old Testament for a Hebrew, it actually pointed to a greater principle, and that principle being the circumcision of the heart, the cutting away of the flesh and the inner pride and the worldliness and the selfishness that all of us struggle with. The desire to have things your way, God wants to cut out of your heart, to remove from the identity of who you are. Because from the moment you're born, you are born with this identity that I want things my way. And if you don't believe me, put, put, put six four-year-olds in the same room and just watch them. Within 3.2 seconds, they will be arguing about what belongs to them. It's in us. And in order to come to Christ, we have to be born again, and that flesh has to be cut away. This process we would call sanctification. It's the process from the moment you get saved for the rest of your life where you're saying no to sin and allowing the Holy Spirit to cut this out. Now the thing that is most prominent to me is that after God gave him this covenant and told him all of these things, we're told in verse 26, this is uh, Genesis 17, 26, it says, that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised. This is where I wanna end, this is where we're gonna finish today. When Abraham, the father of our faith, heard God speak, he decided to obey that very day. And that is what I want for our church. This is what I want for you as the people of God. That for no more, no more time in your life, for no longer will you hear the word of the Lord and say, I'll look at that tomorrow. I'll consider that next week. I'll take a look at that when I get through this project or when we deliver this thing or when we raise our kids or when that season is over. When the Lord speaks, Our ancestors of faith obeyed that very day, and that's the history that we are born into. So right now, for many of you, 
that day is today. Because while I was teaching, by faith, I believe that the Holy Spirit has already been talking to some of you, dads, moms, sons, daughters, about what you need to change when you go home, about what you need to stop looking at, about what you need to stop thinking about, about what you need to stop listening to, about who you need to stop hanging around with, about the stuff that you allow into your heart, about the thoughts that you have been dwelling on. The Holy Spirit is telling you today, through hearing this message, it's time to cut that away. It's time to turn that off. It's time to delete that. It's time to get rid of that. And what I want most for you is for your response not to be, I'll think about it. What I want most for you is for your response to be, I'll obey today. No more time needs to pass before I set my feet in the direction of obedience. So my prayer as we finish today is that you stop waiting and you stop making excuses and you decide that today is the day to obey. Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.